listening to First Church Charlotte. Well, praise the Lord, somebody. Great to see you all here in the house of the Lord. Uh, we are going to get right into the word of the Lord. I want to be respectful of your time. I will say, however, many of you have been traveling out and about in the far reaches of this fruited plain, also known as the United States, and we're so glad to have you back. I hope you had a wonderful holiday time, uh, whether it was friends or family or all by your lonesome. I, ha I hope you had a great a great time. I'm going to read a scripture. We're going to turn to uh, the book of Acts, and we're going to read at verse at chapter number nine. And so, let's stand together, as is our habit for reading, uh, with the uh, the whole house kind of honoring the word of the Lord by by standing together. And we are reading uh, one verse of scripture in Acts chapter number nine. And let's let's. Uh, let's, let's start at verse number 28 to give us a little bit of the context. The passage is about the Apostle Paul. So Paul was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists and they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now remember, uh, Tarsus is where Paul is from. So they basically sent him home. <laughs> They're like, you don't play well with others. And so <laughs> we're going to send you home. Uh, that's how I ended up back in Charlotte. Just, just, just so you know. Now verse 31, I want your attention on this. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and the comfort, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Somebody say multiplied. multiplied. What does God want to do with his church? Multiplied. What does God want to do with your life? Multiplied. And that is where we see, that is actually what we see happening in the New Testament church here. And so I'm going to use that one word kind of as a uh, a theme to organize our, our teaching here tonight. Simply multiply. And before you're seated, uh, high five your neighbor or slap him, whichever one you're more comfortable with, and say, I expect you to help the preaching be short by saying lots of amens loudly. Amen. amen. God bless you. You may be seated. All right, we have been doing a, a series in uh, a Bible study series uh, for the last few weeks. It's been somewhat broken up by the fact that we've had uh, various events, we've had holidays, but we've been continuing in this idea of Bible study that I have simply entitled First Church. Now, if you've noticed, our name is First Church, but really, uh, we want you to understand that the reason for the name is not that we were the First Church here in the city, but that everything we do, we try to do in a similar manner as much as is possible, as much as is reasonable in our society, we try to do as the first church did. Uh, there was great revival in the first century. Uh, even the critics said the church turned the world upside down. Uh, 
Uh, now the world is upside down and needs to be turned right side up, yes? And we need an apostolic Holy Spirit revival, a Holy Ghost outpouring in our generation. And I believe it's the will of God. I don't believe it's hard for God. It might be hard for us, but it is not hard for God. I believe it is God's will to take the loaves and fishes of our lives, my talents, your talents, my abilities, your abilities, and to multiply, somebody say multiply, multiply that for his kingdom. Uh, Remember the loaves and the fishes. The only way the multitude is fed is if we have multiplication. You cannot feed 5,000 with five loaves without serious multiplication. And so it is that even today, if the church is going to have any influence in the world, it's not going to happen by grinding out one addition after another. It's only going to happen through multiplication. In fact, that's not just a ministry kind of philosophy that I'm giving you. This is something shown to us in the Word of God, where through the prophet Joel, we know that in the last days, there would be a greater outpouring than there was even in earlier times. Now, I want to claim that today. I want to claim it for my city. I want to claim it for my family. I want to claim it for this church, not simply for the sake of exalting ourselves. Uh, That is always a flawed and wrong-headed goal. We want to do it for his name's sake. Can I have an amen? And so if the multitude is going to be fed Uh, It's going to happen through multiplication. Now, you guys have heard me teach several times now on the the levels of discipleship shown in the scripture, seven levels of discipleship that are shown in the scripture. Level number one is the 5,000. These are the crowds that followed him, symbolized by two people counts. Number one is the feeding of the 5,000. Number two is after uh, the day of Pentecost, there were about 5,000 added to the church. This is the first level of discipleship. This is a level of interest. This is a level where people, they may not even believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're simply interested and nothing more. Jesus has the kind of ministry that can attack, uh, attract a crowd. Jesus has the kind of ministry that people will come and see. How did Jesus call the disciples? The scripture tells us. He started out out by saying, come and see. This is how he called his disciples. He said, come and see. What's the lowest level of commitment to the kingdom of God, the things of God, or anything related to God? The lowest level of commitment is come and see. It may or may not be for you. You may or may not decide to follow. The lowest level of, 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 of request for commitment is simply this, come and see. Now, Jesus doesn't leave the 12 disciples at that level of commitment, come and see. He takes them all the way to come and die. One of the errors that we do is we want to start everybody at come and die. And then we wonder why we never can multiply. Mm, I'm going to write a rap song before it's over. (laughs) We want to start with come and die, and then we wonder why we never can multiply. Uh, We don't start with come and die. We start with come and see. That's the 5,000. The next level is 500 who saw him alive after his resurrection. They don't believe on him as a great teacher or a great rabbi. Their distinction is that they believe that he is the literal son of God. He is God in the flesh. 
Now, uh, that's the second level of discipleship. These are believers. So the first is I'm interested. That's level number one. Come and see. I'm interested. Uh, The second is I believe. I believe. But the problem with that is uh, where are 380 of them on the day of Pentecost? Now, how is it that you see a man raise himself from the dead, appear to you, and you can't show up for prayer meeting? That's called working with people. (laughs) That's human nature. 380 of them don't make it to the day of Pentecost. So you have, I'm interested. That's the lowest level. You have, I believe. Then you have, I've been changed. That's the day of Pentecost. This is the 120. So you have 5,000. You have 500. You have 120. I've been changed. I was there. I was filled. Notice that if you will not tarry and you will not seek, not only will you not be filled, but you'll not be changed because it's out of that experience that comes the spiritual confidence for you to take the next step of your spiritual journey. Now, even those, the 120, uh, even that is not the end. That's just level number three. Now the next level, but before I get into the next level, I want to point out here that a lot of times people make the mistake of thinking church begins with 120 and that's not biblical. Most of Jesus's miracles were given to the crowd. Most of Jesus' words were given to the crowd. Most of Jesus' kind acts of affection and charity were given to people we don't even know their name. But yet God blessed them and healed them and loved them. Uh, If you uh, think that the work of God begins at the 120, you're going to miss the harvest field that God wants you to labor in. Do you see? And so the next level above the 120 who've been changed is the 70 that Christ chose to go out and introduce people to him before he got there. So he's only one individual. And so, of course, he's God. But in the flesh, he is Jesus. uh, And he is coming through. And his disciples, the 70, the inner circle, they've they've kind of gone out and they said, look, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's coming through here. Um, I want to introduce you to him. And people would say, sure, we would like to meet this great teacher. This shows leadership. This shows a heart to lead someone else. This literally is not the first level I'm interested, not the second level, I believe, not the third level I've been changed. This is the fourth level I will go. I will be the mouth that speaks. Now, there's always going to be less of them than there are of people who are interested. There's always going to be many more people in the crowd. But if you don't have a heart for the crowd, you'll never have a ministry for the crowd. If you see the crowd as your enemy, you'll never be a conduit for the love of God to flow through. You guys have heard this all before. The 70 is I will go. Uh, The 12 is the next level. This is uh, level five. And this is not simply I will go, but this is I will give you all. Every one of these men are going to die for their commitments to God. They're not simply willing to go, not simply willing to give. They will give all. The next level is that prophetic level of spiritual inclusion. The inner three who are there on Mount Transfiguration. They are there for the Olivet Discourse. All the disciples don't hear the prophecy Jesus speaks right before his crucifixion known uh, in the scripture as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, That's for the inner circle. And finally, the highest level, John the 
beloved. Uh, this, this shows you this hierarchy of, of opportunities for us to progress toward, toward God. None of them are wrong. All of them are where people are right now. However, if a church is going to ever be multiplied, it's going to have to have, to have a heart and a burden for the crowd. And so it is how... So it is, we see in the book of Acts, the great time of spiritual explosion. What were they doing when the church really, really grew? What was happening? Now, uh, I, will be, uh, I will be transparent with you and say, as a believer, I tend to like it best when there are miracle signs and wonders. Why? Because like all God's created beings, I am entranced by power. Who doesn't want to be powerful? We We all want to be powerful. Uh, Sometimes we forget the fact that the conditions that are ripe for spiritual multiplication are not simply the powerful, but they are the practical. So let me real quick tell you a, 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 a favorite joke of mine. So there is a young Kung Fu student who was in a, 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 a temple high in the mountains studying shallow, Shaolin Kung Fu. And um, he goes to his, uh, whatever they call him, his, his instructor, and he says, I want to know why I'm not getting better. I, I've been training a long time and still in all my contests I just lose, 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 lose. And his uh, monk professor said to him, hmm, have you seen the beauty of the moon upon the icy winter fields? And the pupil said, hmm, yes, I have seen the beauty of the moon. Have you seen the majesty of the moon upon the spring harvest? Hmm, yes, I have. Have you seen the the, the nobility of the moon in the summer fields and the, the winter harvest and the spring growth? Have you seen? He said, yes, master, I have seen. And the master says, well, that explains why you're not getting better. It makes perfect sense. The people said, what are you talking about? I've seen the majesty of the moon. He said, your problem is you're watching the moon and not studying Kung Fu. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the point? Here's the point. We, especially as we get closer to God and we've served God longer and longer, there's a tendency for us to seek after the, um, the, the, the spiritually charged, the powerful, the prophetic, and forget the fertile soil of Christian kindness, godly goodness, daily prayer, we for, we're so busy pursuing the glorious that we forget the church was multiplied in the midst of things that good people following after the direction of scripture could do. You did not have to see 17 angels dancing on the head of a pen to be part of this revival. And what we read here together was what I call fertile soil of revival. It literally was the basic things that could be done and could be happening. You didn't have to be locked up in prison where an earthquake happened for this kind 
kind of revival to happen. You didn't have to have, you know, a, a personal uh, squad of angelic beings following you around, fanning you while you frothed at the mouth and spoke mighty things to mighty people. It was just the daily walk of this type of Christianity. And in the context of this kind of soil, the church begins to multiply. So I want to show you four things that were happening that enabled them, these four things that enabled them truly to multiply. And of course, we read them together and you probably have already have already begun to see them in thinking about this scripture. The first thing is this. Then through all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, all the churches had peace. Isn't that interesting? Um, peace is very important if you are going to have influence in a community. I, I, I will be the first to admit that there is always... Uh, an attack of the enemy against revival. I'll be the first to admit that people who are threatened by a revival or intimidated by revival, uh, they will, just as they did the book of Acts, kind of, kind of speak against it in their own way. Uh, I, you see that in the book of Acts. Uh, but a lot of times the powerful stories are stories of persecution. It is the church growing in spite of being locked up in jail. It is the church growing in spite of the, uh, the Sadducees, which is the, the criticism they're having here, the Hellenists is how they're referred to. These are the, 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 the Greek-influenced Jews. We know them as Sadducees. They are the ones persecuting here. They're the ones seeing this new church as a threat. And so it is, of course, natural for these different groups to be intimidated and to come against it. But I want you to see the period of great growth happens when these four things are happening. The first thing, of course, is peace. Uh, I pray as the Bible instructed us to do. I pray for peace uh, among uh, the nations so the gospel can be preached. That is a biblical directive given to us in the scripture to pray for peace that the gospel might be preached. Er, further beyond simply a geopolitical view of things, I would uh, pray that we would fulfill the commandment in Ephesians chapter 4 that as a church we would live in the unity of the spirit and in the bond of the bond of peace. And so we, we see here this reality of how people in unity are able to literally have tremendous influence on their, on their society when they're fighting and when there's discontentment and when there's anger and when there's all of these things, it's hard for the church to multiply. But here you see the first thing in this soil of spiritual multiplication is that all the churches had had peace. Uh, I, I want to uh, challenge all of us to be people of peace. Again and again in the scripture, we are, we are instructed uh, to be people who give peace, uh, speak peace, uh, people who have our feet shod with peace, uh, our, uh, our very demeanor of of being, our 
style of, of serving the Lord. It is to follow peace with all men and godliness or a holiness, uh, godlikeness. Uh, as much as is possible, we should have peace in our walk with God. We should have peace in our spiritual journey. We should not seek to divide. I understand uh, we oftentimes can make ourselves feel better by finding other people wanting and critiquing other people. Uh, but I want you to know that is not an uh, environment in which the church will multiply. How did the New Testament church deal with this? First of all, I want to say this. The New Testament church had much broader differences between them than the modern church. Uh, they had tremendous differences of culture, differences of, of background. The thing they agreed on was the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. They disagreed about how to worship. They disagreed about what you could do and what you couldn't do. They disagreed even about moral things that Paul had to sort out. The thing they were agreed upon is that this man Jesus has changed has changed everything in the story of humanity reaching for God and God making a way for humanity to be rejoined to him. Jesus changed everything. They didn't have scripture like we do to all get on the same page. They literally had to accept people that were very different than them. How good are we at accepting people who are very different from us? I'll be the first to say that can be very hard. Uh, the hardest thing in the world is to have a church with a culture of reconciliation. A culture of reconciliation is where I am reconciled to the fact that you are very different than me and it's okay. The hardest thing in the world is to build a church with this kind of culture. You will notice it is human nature for religious groups to organize around their uh, likenesses. Like, for example, uh, most churches don't have as multicultural a, a look as we do. In fact, I have had more than a few uh, people tell me that the first thing and the most impressive thing they noticed about our church is the lack of a single dominant, a single dominant culture, but a whole flowering of many different cultures. I thank God for that. It's not an accident. We are intentional, intentional about that. Um, and so, uh, that's that's the first thing. That's that's a God thing. Uh, but most churches uh, you go to, uh, if they have a they have a dominant culture, they have a dominant style, and they will have a dominant kind of political orientation. Now, there's two parts to that. One part of that is the politics of the day. Uh, you will go to churches and you'll hear the the pulpit kind of let you know which way they vote and which way you ought to vote. And uh, I, I I'm not unsympathetic to them. I I wish sometimes everyone agreed with me. But if I do that, um, we won't have peace. And there's something more important than what I think about the world. There's something more important than what I think. I... I am going to give up arguing about many, many things in order to get us all to agree on this one thing, and that is Jesus is the answer for the world today. And so that's why even, you'll notice even if you guys see me on social media, even on social media, I am going to be a peacemaker. I know I can stir it up. You ought to hear me gripe to my wife sometimes. <laughs> I know I can, but I want to be a peacemaker. Yes. Blessed are those people who make peace. 
You see, we, we literally live out this action in our, in our lives. Peace is very important. I, I came across something that really uh, touched me. A, a book uh, was written by an author named Leanne Payne. And she, uh, she, the name of the book is Listening Prayer. And I don't agree with everything in the book as is typical. Most of us read things and we get a lot of good out of it. We can't agree with every single part uh, of it. That's not to say there's not a lot of value there. But she said something that just really was astonishing to me. And she was, she's making a critique of the people who think it's their job to go through Christianity and call out all the errors and all the mistakes and all the people who are getting it wrong and all the people who are borderline uh, heretical or speaking heresies. And, that, and she calls them, she calls them professional, let's see, professional cult hunters. That is, that is what she calls them. And she says this, and she's a very moderate person. Uh, and I just thought it was beautiful the way she said this. So just consider this with, uh, for a moment. Professional cult hunters are as dangerous as though they fear. They usurp the place of the true theologian slash or dash prophet who in touch with the mind and the condition of God's people sounds warnings and gives balanced theological answers in terms laity can understand. The cult hunter, in contrast, turns misguided laity into ravening wolves like themselves. Without knowledge, they condemn and slander and devour people of God along with the heresies they think to comprehend that comprehend. The cult hunters have no positive ministry, only negative ministry of criticizing others. They are compelled to discover new heretics in order to keep their books, teachings, and television programs going. And like those they pursue, they do it in the power of an unaided intellect and imagination, their minds bereft of wisdom from above, because they despise incarnational reality and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is a fancy theological way of saying they miss the heart of God. This is the problem with the judgmental heart. This is the problem with the Pharisee in the scripture. It's not that they miss the law of God. They get the law of God. They miss the heart of God. That's a big deal. And so when the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery, they aren't missing the law. They are rightly quoting the law. They want Jesus to agree with them that the law matters more than the person. They haven't missed the law of God. They've missed the heart of God. And what the Lord does is flip the script to show them his heart, which is... You didn't get the law wrong. You got the heart of God wrong. And the law does not matter more than this soul. This soul matters more than the law. So what we should do, we who have also broken the law, is we should err on the side of grace, mercy, and peace with her and simply say to her, go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn thee. You see, that is the issue that happens in churches. It's not that there aren't people who 
who need to be rebuked. There are, and the Lord has placed appropriate authorities within his body that have the right spiritual jurisdiction to handle it uh, and let them do it. That, that's, that is a given. The, the, the problem is, is when we get into this habit of correction and judgment, uh, the problem there is that we trade peace for truth. We're never going to say truth doesn't matter. We're simply going to say that everybody comes to truth from a different place and we're all leading them with peace, with mercy, with love. We're leading them to one ending. They all started in different places. We're not saying truth is relative. We're, all, we're simply saying everybody starts at a different place and we're all trying to meet together in one mind, one accord in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Clap your hands to the Lord here right now for a moment. I've used up all my time on the first one. The first one is peace. I haven't even got to all of peace. The second one is edification. They have truly a culture of edifying one another. What does it mean to edify? So first, they have peace. Secondly, they edify one another. What does it mean to have a culture of edification? Edification is different than rebuke. It's different than correction. Edification is the person who always believes in you a little bit more than you believe in you. Spirit of edifying one another, uh, where you're being positive about that person. Um, you're, you're believing in that person. Even when they're down on themselves, you're the person who say, that's all right, that's all right. His mercy was new this morning. So we're just going to get back on track. That culture of edification that always is saying, don't, don't give up on God. Don't give up on the house of God. Don't give up on church. I know, you've, I, I know some things have happened, but don't give up. I believe in you. I believe you're going to make it. I want to have a ministry of edification. I want people to feel like the preacher believes in them a little bit more than they believe in themselves. I believe when God gets finished with you, it's going to astound you what God has done through you and for you. I want to see a culture of edification here at First Church. The third thing that we see here in the scripture is they live in fear of God. Now, I could take a whole lesson on the fear of God because there's elements to it. The first of them is the obvious, the terror that you see in the Old Testament when people are stricken with fear of God. That's just that's just uh, one element of the fear of God. There's also a service element. And you go through the, in fact, this would be a great problem project for you to do. Go through the Old Testament. Look at the fear of God. You'll see where there is a, uh, there's a service element of the fear of God, a devotion element of the fear of God. Isaiah says, and uh, let me just touch this as I move along here. Isaiah says, the fear of the Lord is God's treasure. He treasures when you fear him. He's not talking about a trembling fear. He's talking about a love relationship. He's talking about, um, a, 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 as it were, an, a, an adoration, an adoration, 
affection for, for God. So there's the service. There is the respect. Yes, there is the, the holy fear of the Lord. But even more beyond that, there is also uh, used in the story of Esther, there is a very unique uh, story uh, that is told where, if I can find the, find the passage here, where uh, they, literally, they literally talk about how uh, the, 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 all of the, the nation where they were at was influenced by them. And many people, if I, if I can get to my notes here, forgive me, um, if I, many people become Jews, not born of the house of Israel, but they become Jews because of the tremendous influence uh, that is happening among, among the, uh, the nation where they are a part. That happened even in Esther, this, this influence. And so this, this fear of the Lord is more than simply terror. It's more than simply this sense of, 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 uh, uh, affection. It's also service. It is also adoration. And this is what it comes down to. When you truly are living with the fear of the Lord, it is as though you are living for an audience of one. You see, because we can often fear one another and we can also often fear our brethren and we can make ourselves pretty on the outside and pretend to be religious and our hearts be far from God. We can come to church and act prayed through and be backslidden in our life. You see, because we're not fearing God, we're fearing one another. Whenever you have had any pretense in your, um, in your walk with God, whenever you have had any where uh, you kind of played a role, that was because at that moment you feared, man, you feared man more than God. And you feared more what someone would say than you feared about what God thought. You see, if you have people who sincerely care about what God thinks, it becomes the soil of, of a great revival. And lastly, they walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. These four elements, peace, one another, a culture of edification. I want to remind you that all of the gifts of the Spirit that are given to us in Ephesians chapter 4 are given to us for the edification of the body, we must have a culture of edification where we prefer one another, where we encourage one another, where we believe in one another. But number three, the fear of the Lord. This, this fear where I'm serving God. I've got to please you, Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter if I know how to fake it at church and make people think that I'm right in my heart. I've got to serve you, Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter. I must, and, and really, I don't have time for it, but I could do a, uh, extended Bible study on how God in the Old Testament became increasingly uh, disgusted. I don't think that's too strong of a word to use with the, what the house of Israel had made of their Moses law worship, the covenant of Moses. And the Lord literally gets to a point where he says, I just wish you wouldn't even offer sacrifices. I what, what they're still keeping the law. They're still going through this routine of religion and the Lord doesn't even want he wishes they wouldn't even do it. How can you say that when you, God, are the one who gave it to us? Here's why. They're not fearing God. They're doing it for one another. The New Testament calls it a form of godliness. We, we look like we're spiritual. We act like we're praying people, but we're not praying people. This is the challenge for us to fear the Lord. Thirdly, uh, or was that three? That was, that was three? 
All right, I've got to keep my spreadsheet people over here happy. That was two. So number one is, I have disagreement between the team over here. So number one is peace. Number two is a culture of edification. Number three, the fear of the Lord. Number four, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That word comfort, again, this is so much material here. Uh, that word uh, is parakletos. Uh, I believe that's the right pronunciation. Um, what it means literally in, in its original language in the Greek is uh, one who comes alongside you. So if to have a, a, a literal understanding, uh, you can come on up, brother, and reassure everybody by playing the piano that I'm almost done, even though I'm going to go for another hour. Uh, <laughs> the, what, what, literally what that means is the Holy Spirit comes alongside your life. We say it like this, walking in the Spirit. So we have four things happening. This is the soil of revival that springs out like a multiplication. Number one, peace. Churches that love to fight never grow. We need peace. Say it with me. I'm going to need to be a peacemaker. I'm going to be a peacemaker. We don't return evil for evil. Just because someone said that you look like the southern end of a northbound donkey does not mean you get to call them the southern end of a northbound rhinoceros. It just does not work that way. Okay? We are peacemakers. Number two, we've got to believe in each other. Not just the people you approve of. Edification is not for the people in the church who you agree with how they vote, how they talk, how they live. It's you believing that they can be something more than what they are. The person who's doing everything right is more spiritual than you are anyway. They should be encouraging you. Don't worry about them. Find somebody who's barely making it. Walk up beside them. This is what God does for us. Walk up beside them and saying, I believe, I believe you're going to make it. I believe God's on your side. I believe good things are happening in your life. In fact, I think you're probably a better Christian than I am. Prefer one another. Think not of yourselves higher than you ought. That's a culture of edification. In fact, you ought to get in the habit of saying that to people. Prefer one another. Number three, I forgot. Fear of the Lord. We've got to be real. And we've got to be, we've got to have a, a great desire to get things right. And a great desire to get not just the law of God, but the heart of God right. That fear of the Lord. Lord, I, I want to, I want to see you. I want to know you in my life. And lastly, we've got to walk in the leading of the Spirit. We've got to walk in the leading of the Spirit. We must have the comfort of the Holy Ghost. The, the paraclesis come along beside us. The paraclete is the singular, but the verb, that's the noun, the verb is the paraclesis, the act of coming alongside and helping and assisting. That's what we need. And if a church does that, these none of these four things involves you fasting until your belly button falls off. Now, most of us, since it's Thanksgiving, should probably think about fasting until our belly button falls off. Uh, none of these things involve you seeing 17 angels dancing on the head of a pen. Nothing wrong with the supernatural. I am all for it. But that should not be a barrier to us. And we should not seek that at the... Ex in other words, we should not seek the gifts of the Spirit at the expense of the fruit of the Spirit. Let's all stand.
when a church gets these elements right, the church can multiply. Lord Jesus, we're praying that you would help this church, help this church get it all right, Lord Jesus, that our influence would be broader than anything we ever imagined, and the good we can do in this community would be bigger than anything we could imagine. And the help we could offer to people's lives would be richer than anything we could imagine. Lord Jesus, we don't want simply uh, to have uh, a fixation upon our, our definition of what revival is. We don't want to just be numbers focused or any of those things, Lord. But we desperately want to have as, as impactful uh, influence on this community as possible, Lord. And so would you, in some way, in some powerful way that is beyond our understanding, would you come alongside us and would you multiply our efforts? In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we're dismissed, why don't you turn around to someone and maybe uh, uh, take their hand or put a hand on their shoulder, whatever, whatever. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.